Hello, and welcome to a new episode of the Health Disparities Podcast, conversations about health disparities with people working to eliminate them. I am Dr. Bonnie Simpson-Mason, and this week we are recording our conversations at the National Harbor in Maryland, where we are enjoying a very busy program of speakers and workshops at the annual Movement is Life Caucus. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing and having a um, detailed conversation with one of my first mentees, who has now evolved to be one of the nation's experts in obesity medicine, Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford, obesity medicine physician scientist who cares for children, adolescents, and adults at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, where, among many other things, she's also an associate at the Disparity Solutions Center, affiliated faculty at the Mangan Institute of Health Policy, and an executive committee member for the Nutrition Obesity Research Center. Now that is a mouthful because this person that I'm proud to say is former mentee, friend, colleague, but also expert, um, is gonna share with us and enlighten us today on the many aspects of obesity. And we couldn't be happier to have you here today with us. Well, thanks for having me. It's a delight to be with who I still consider to be one of my mentors and closest friends. Absolutely. So um, you know that the Movement is Life Caucus centers around um, us looking at pain as being the nidus for the evolution of so many other comorbidities, obesity being one of those primary um, related diseases. So there are a lot of myths and misunderstandings about obesity. Do you think that obesity brings on its own bias to people who may be experiencing bias due to race and gender? So I think there's a significant overlay when we're looking at okay. race bias and weight bias. Mm. So what we do know now in the United States is that the most prevalent form of bias is indeed weight bias. So we are um, at our own free will of making fun of people that carry excess weight. If you look at many of the roles that are in media, you know, people are lauded for making fun of themselves if they carry excess weight. Mm. We see them in roles in which they're often eating unhealthy foods, being sedentary, things of that sort. So if we want to overlay something like race, which we know is the second most common form of bias here in the United States, often sometimes understated and not quite blatant, when you have the overlay of those two, you can imagine that those present significant problems. And when we look at the issue that obesity disproportionately affects racial and ethnic minority populations. So we can see that there might be an issue when we're looking at that population that might struggle with excess weight and the biases that they receive. Imagine a black woman who has severe obesity and what biases she might face and what, how that will lead to her inability to even achieve and attain in life because of all of the notions of who she is mm-hmm. before she says a word. Mm-hmm. And, and that impact um, affects her professionally, personally, interpersonally, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. I think that it goes across all spectrums. Look at, let's say she wanted to get a job mm-hmm. and she's highly mm-hmm. qualified. I can tell you um, when I was um, looking at an individual of mine who was a patient of mine, highly qualified to do a, a role of a unit secretary in a hospital. Mm-hmm. She went and applied for that job, had an excellent CV that spoke to her expertise within the field, and I overheard the nursing staff who was in charge of making the final selection for her role, um, speaking about her. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they they immediately stated was like, Do, does she really believe she can do this job? Have you seen how heavy she is? Oh, we will never consider her. It had nothing to do with her qualifications. Right. 
And so this person who happened to be a patient of mine was like, well, have you heard about the role? I had heard about the role and I'd heard that the discussion surrounding her qualifications for that position had nothing to do with her ability to actually carry out the role, but it was indeed primarily focused on her weight and weight status. Weight bias in full and living color. Absolutely. She also happened to be a woman of color, so she was an African-American woman. So the overlay between those two and, and a Southern hospital, I think, um, just had all of the, the dice were against her, unfortunately. So, you know, speaking of that, that dual um, level of bias, you know, about 35% of African-American adults are obese. Actually, much, much higher. So we know 40% of the U.S. adult population has obesity. 60% of African-American women have obesity. Another 20% have overweight, which means that 80% of African-American women in the United States have overweight and obesity. Okay, well, let's distinguish between the two. Let's okay, clarify. Absolutely. So absolutely. Define for us, just in layman's terms, mm-hmm. what overweight mm-hmm. is versus obesity, please. Absolutely. So when we look at it from a clinical definition, we use this tar- term called body mass index. Okay. And so body mass index takes into account your height and weight and then puts you in a category. Category. Okay. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, do not apply what I'm going to say about adults to children because the definition does vary when you're looking at children versus adults. Okay. So we'll focus on the adult population here. A person is considered to have overweight if they have a BMI of 25 to 29.9. That is the clinical definition of someone who has overweight. Someone has obesity when they have a BMI greater than or equal to 30. So there are different classifications. We can get into looking at mild, moderate, and severe forms of obesity, and we don't want to get into those um, different numbers because the numbers do vary based upon the severity of the obesity. Um, But what we're looking at is that if we're talking about 60% of African-American women have a BMI of 30 or higher, so very, very large numbers. 40% of the U.S. adult population has obesity here at the current numbers that we have that have been reported out from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So very high numbers. This is not an issue um, that we should take lightly, secondary to the significance and prevalence in today's society. You know, so these numbers are incredible. So what are we doing in the U.S. that's contributing to these extreme rates of, I mean, obesity, you said that's a BMI over 30. Yeah, equal to or greater than Greater than or equal Mm -hmm. to 30. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's 40% of the U.S. population. Like you said, 60% of African-American women. I mean, what are we doing? Because, I mean, this is is a lot. So I think it's multifactorial, and I think one of the issues that... um, have been a major failure, and that's not here only in the U.S., but also in the U.K. and around the world, is that Mm -hmm. we've hyper-focused on two primary causes, or what we perceive to be the etiology of obesity. We perceive it's all about food consumption and physical activity. But what we do know in the obesity community that it is much more complex than that. For example, one of the things that I think people don't recognize is how highly heritable obesity actually is. Mm. Obesity is more heritable than height. So if you think about two tall parents, let's say you have a dad that's 6'8 and a mom that's 6 feet tall, you presume that if they have children, their children will likely be tall. The likelihood that they'll be 4'11, pretty low, right? 
When we look at obesity and its heritability, it's somewhere on the order of 70 to 80%. Really? So highly heritable. So if you have parents, and if we have 40% of the U.S. adult population, potential people of, that can be parents, contributing to this obesity epidemic, just them having the children without anything that you do once you get them here, really contributes to our obesity epidemic, right? So you're saying that genetics is playing this significant role in obesity on top of food consumption and physical activity. Well, those are just two other things. So we can get into other issues. Well, you did say multi. 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 So, I mean, uh, let's just talk about some of the, I think, some of the things that we can tackle if you're listening to okay. this. Sleep quality and duration plays a large role in how the body regulates weight. Mm. We know that the brain actually regulates weight, and there are certain pathways I you guys can't see this, and I'm not going to go into the complexities, but what we do know is that the same part of the brain that controls weight interacts with the part of the brain that controls our sleep. Mm. And so when sleep is dysregulated, what you may see without modifying either diet quality and or physical activity is you may see either increases and or decreases based upon how you're modulating that sleep part of the equation. So sleep is playing a role... Huge. In it as well, everyone. Okay, yeah. see, this is, this is golden information for us here. I think we as doctors are significant contributors. I think Absolutely. we are a big contributor. And one of the key things that we contribute, in addition to our biases, is we prescribe many medications that mm-hmm. cause weight gain. Mm-hmm. So we know that ads come on television all the time, and they say, you know, you usually see a person flying around with a kite right, riding their bike and walking their dog, and then they get to the disclaimer of what the side effects are. And if you listen closely, they say it um, very rapidly, much like an auctioneer would, but weight gain is often included in those side effects. So we're treating other issues, which is great, but we're causing and we're contributing to the problem of obesity. And one of the key things I do with patients is I look at their medication list. Absolutely. See what they're on, see if I can adjust with, of course, talking with their doctors, so I remain amicable with my colleagues, certain medications to ensure that we can potentially just make tweaks. So one, so this is, I will go into, so I'm a black woman, and so I spent a lot of time at the hair salon, So, but this is, in, this is irrelevant. Right. Um, I went in to see my, my hairstylist one day, and she had gained some weight, and she was talking to me. She's getting free advice because I'm sitting in her chair. And one of the things she said to me was, you know, I went on this medication for depression. I was like, really? What did you go on? And she told me she had gone on a particular drug. And I was like, well, why did they choose that particular drug? She's like, I'm not sure. That's just what they put me on. I said, well, and I wrote out on like my business card, which I had. I said, tell them I want you to try this drug at this dose and blah, blah, blah. And just give them my card so they know it's not just you, I'm, you know, making this up. Sure. By the time I came back to her eight to 12 weeks later, I can't remember if it was eight or 12 weeks. She lost 21 pounds Wow! with one medication adjustment. adjustment. Mm-hmm. She was like, yeah. I, saw, I, was like, I felt like I should have gotten my hair done for free, right? You guys agree with me, right? Just <laughs> my thoughts. Um, because that was free advice from just, you know, one of the experts in obesity. But one of the things that I was really happy about was to see that she was able to mm-hmm. quantify, well, I was able to quantify that she had indeed been able to lose weight with one modification, changing one drug, still treating the the disease that is depression, 
but changing the medication to one that was more weight neutral. Well, what I also hear is that she was willing, your willingness to communicate with her, mm -hmm. uh, a point of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. You all clearly have a relationship, mm -hmm. albeit not doctor-patient, but hairstylist to right. clients, <laughs> right. still as dependent, yeah. right? <laughs> um, but she was able to advocate for herself, right. which is what I think we want many of our listeners to be able to do. We, want, we want them to be able to ask the question, you know, are my medications, doc, potentially contributing to my state of obesity on top of everything else? Because I now understand that could be, you know, a contributor. So I, I think that advocacy, Absolutely. you really empowered her. So I, th I think so much of that. But let, let's speak about some of the other comorbidities mm -hmm. associated with, so comorbidities um, for, our, for our audience are the, the additional disease conditions or states that may evolve once someone is obese. So let's just talk about a few of those because I know from your position, when you see patients, you evaluate the whole patient Absolutely. and all of their associated disease processes. So, you know, it's not just obesity, it's the fact that it opens up essentially another full set mm -hmm. of problems for our patients. Yeah. And so absolutely. So what we do know about obesity is that it's associated with at least 100 plus um, what we consider comorbid conditions or obesity-related illnesses. Mm. I kind of try to like to remove that mor word morbid because it obviously is yeah. morbid. So, um, But we do know it's associated with many issues. Some of the key diseases or obesity-related diseases that we often think of are heart disease, sure. type 2 diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea. Those are kind of the big three. But many cancers... Um, often many um, arthritic issues and orthopedic issues, heart issues, lung issues are all related to obesity. And what brings me joy in the work that I do is that when I treat their obesity, I'm often able to rid them and or decrease the likelihood that they have many of these obesity-related illnesses. It's really the only disease where you can treat it and fix many other things. So if I treat your severe obesity, and let's say you develop either mild obesity or just are considered overweight, oftentimes I'm able to resolve your high blood pressure. I'm able to get rid of your sleep apnea. You no longer have joint pain. And I'm removing medication after medication, resolving issues in your chart. So much so, many times I'm like, well, what am I going to build this patient for? Because I've gotten rid of all of their problems. Mm -hmm. So then, thankfully, for ICD-10 codes, I can say history of obesity mm -hmm. <laughs> as something to bill for. But what, I'm, what I get joy from is seeing those resolution of those issues. Absolutely. And or significant improvement. And so I, I really think that those are issues. If we look at type 2 diabetes, for example, mm -hmm. that can start very early in life with insulin resistance. And often we're seeing this show up in many of my pediatric population before the age of 10. If I can intervene early enough, I can either prevent the likelihood that they develop diabetes and or completely resolve their diabetes, which is, you can imagine not only great for them, it's great for healthcare system, it's great for healthcare spending, it's great all across the board. So it's a win-win situation. I think just understanding that obesity in and of itself is, lies at the core of so many of these other conditions, I think that's um, 
you know, an important point for our listeners to know so we can attack that, that we can even prevent some of these other these other issues. And, and of course, here at the at the Movement is Life conference, you know, we talk about movement and exercise, you know, being at the core mm-hmm. um, of of uh, of life. Right. right. And and helping to curb the, the condition of being overweight or obese. Well, so I want to stop you, my dear Dr. Bonnie Simpson. Yes. Um, so we don't want to ever use the word obese. So I would say to delete that word from Ooh, your, delete, delete the word. Okay. Um, because obese is a label. What we know is obesity is a disease. And so one of the Ooh. things that we think about when we're looking at obesity is that we want to not promote stigma by labeling someone as obese. Okay. And so I will change that um, in the chart and I will say obesity, which is a disease, okay. a process that's controlled by the brain and affected by different organs like the stomach, the fat tissue, et cetera. But we want to just say the patient has obesity. So it removes okay. some of that stigma um, from the individual. So I like to delete that word, um, and I take much pride in doing so. Is that people-first language, talking about the person first, and then they have this disease that we're willing to treat. So that's my first thing. You said something else that I feel like I missed didn't capture. I'll probably say it again okay, so you okay. can correct me okay. on that point too. <laughs> okay. But but I, I love I I mean we have to learn and grow, right? right. So yeah. we don't want to be contributors right. to exactly. the denigration of people who Absolutely. have the disease of obesity. See? I mean you're a great learner. Thank I already you so know much. that. I'm fast too. You are you so, are super fast. So so and so you <laughs> talked about, you know, how um, some of the chemical messengers from the stomach and some mm-hmm. of these other organ systems play a role. Absolutely. Can we can we break that down just Ooh, briefly? Also, the, the easiest way I can think of it okay. is that there, so there is an or, a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, and the hypothalamus is really the part of the brain that's regulating not only how much you eat, but it's also regulating how much weight you store. And so there are two primary pathways down the brain that one might travel. One is the anorexigenic pathway. And when you hear anorexia, that means that maybe I'm not eating, I'm not storing very much. So those people tend to be very lean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then other people travel down the orexigenic, which is the opposite of anorexigenic, which means that they tend mm. to not only eat more, but store more. And so often you might talk to your friends that may struggle or have excess weight, and they're like, you know what, if I look at that piece of pie, I think I gained 10 pounds. And it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but them, you know, having one morsel of that pie may indeed pack on and or store much more weight than someone that's significantly leaner. And you, what you, but what we do as individuals, and these are our biases, if we see a lean person walk by, we presume that they're eating very healthy, they're exercising, they're doing all these things, when indeed... What we find, especially amongst our patients that have had obesity and have really struggled with this disease throughout their life course, is that they are actually more active and more attentive to their eating choices because it does matter. Mm-hmm. For those persons that are linked, they don't have to think about it. It's, it's like a, it's, it's an afterthought. They're like, oh, whatever, I can eat 10 slices of pizza. I'll maybe weigh a pound more tomorrow. So they, they are often, so the, but the bias is, is that if you see that person that has severe obesity walking by, that they're not active. Sure. They're sure. not doing anything. But what I see in the gym, let me tell you, is that they're often going twice as hard for twice as long. Mm-hmm. But nowhere, but their, their body, unfortunately, defends a higher set point for weight. One other good way, I think, to look at it is that I think of people of having different size gas tanks. 
those that have severe obesity have the gas tank of an army tank. So imagine those big army tanks, you know, how much gas it might take to fill them to propel around the streets. Okay. And then maybe lean people, they have this, the gas tank the size of a Prius. Okay. And some of those lean people, right? They want to, especially guys, right? They want to bulk up. They want to get shrunk, but they're little bitty people. I mean, and, and their gas tank is the size of a Prius. And so their brain is like, nope, you have this gas tank, the size of a Prius. We're going to do what we can to keep it a Prius. The people that have the gas tank of an army, they maybe want to be a Prius, but you know what? Their body's like, nope, we have an army tank to fill and it's going to compensate to make sure that it stays at that set point for weight to maintain that army tank. Mm. So that's what it is. It's about that set point. And some of it's genetically determined. Some of it's influenced by our environment. Some of it's influenced by medications. But that set point, once it gets there, let's say you get to 300 pounds, it knows this and it's been there for a year. It The brain remembers and it does whatever it can to get back to that point. So that's where it wants to stay. It wants to stay. It wants to stay there. And we can do things. And there, I'm not saying that the, the battle is is overcome, that we, we do have strategies to address that, that actually affect how the brain sees weight. Surgery for those that have severe obesity, medications, mostly act on the brain to regulate how the body sees weight. So there are different things, and I'm not saying that you just have to use those, but we step up therapy when we recognize that lifestyle modifications like exercise, diet, medication changes have not worked. We step that and graduate that therapy up to, to the highest forms of therapy um, for the for those that need it most. Well, that's what you specialize in, right. and I think I'm I'm hearing um, a couple of our listeners, you know, breathe a sigh of relief to know that a there are other options mm -hmm. that can be pursued mm -hmm. uh, effectively. They work, but also too, so you don't have to feel so guilty that Absolutely. I've been, you know, I've been eating the right things, and I've been I've been trying to exercise, or I have been exercising, like you said, twice as long and getting half the results. You know, there's a set point in your brain that it's is important. trying to maintain the tank size. It's trying to maintain the tank. And you're like, if you're running into that situation where you're doing all of the things that you've been, you know, those things, looking at diet quality, physical activity, or sleep, sure, and you've maximized those and you're still struggling, I would seek out care from someone like myself that specializes in obesity medicine mm -hmm. to, to graduate your therapies, to make sure that we're able to help you achieve and maintain a healthy weight. So, I, you know, I, I love that. So we're giving our, our listeners some options and um, different ways to think about obesity, the disease. Absolutely. Um, but let's, let's talk about some real-life influences and stressors as we close. You know, there are environmental pressures mm -hmm. um, to remain physically active, but then there are also stressors um, such as race. And so this can be a power-packed question for our last couple of minutes. Oh. But But... How do these environmental pressures, you know, limit our physical activity? How does stress, you know, contribute to our disease state of being of obesity? Oh, absolutely. I think I have this. I think I got it for you. I'm so sure. if we're looking at something like racism and what we do know from like a study like the Jackson Heart study mm -hmm. is that people that experience racism often carry more excess weight than others. Right. What happens is if you experience racism, stress hormones in your body, like C-reactive protein, cortisol, IL-1, IL-6, you guys don't have to remember this, I do, they go up. And when our body experiences stress from an evolutionary perspective, it sees stress as the thought process that a famine is coming. The problem is the famine's not coming. 
but our bodies don't distinguish the stress of not having access to food from racism, from stress at our job, from stress in our relationships. And so what it typically does is it wants to store fat. Whoa, that makes me angry, (laughs) but that's good to know. Wow. So when we look at this overlay of racism, weight bias, the, the higher prevalence of obesity and racial and ethnic minorities here in the U.S., I do think racism is a contributor. It's hard to quantify. Sure. Um, but if we look at something like a weight bias internalization scale and sure. look at race um, and racism scales that are out there that are validated, and you, I think if someone were to do a great study looking at the overlay, we would see that there is a significant um, synergy, unfortunately, between racism, excess weight, uh, secondary to excess stress. And then hence the 60% of African-American women who are obese in have this country obesity. are most have, who have obesity. Okay. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to get it permanently, yes. but who have obesity. Absolutely. These are the contributors. Absolutely. Well, you know, Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford, I think that we have just learned so much from you today. We're certainly going to invite you back for another uh, episode of um, where you can share more information with us because I had like five additional questions that I didn't <laughs> get a chance to, to ask you. But I think we've covered from a fundamental perspective um, some of the key components mm-hmm. of the disease of obesity. Absolutely. So I can't thank you enough. And so if you, you know, in my mind, um, some of the most important things that we talked about today include you know, just now understanding the most prevalent form of bias is weight followed by race. Mm-hmm. And then when you have the overlay of both, then we actually have confounding factors leading to the numbers that we were talking about, 40% of the U.S. population having the disease of obesity, mm-hmm. as well as 60% of African-American women. I also thought that understanding that the disease of obesity um, is a multifactorial, meaning is its cause has many sources, mm-hmm. not just food consumption or physical activity, but also mm-hmm. genetics, sleep mm-hmm. quality, and you could probably list another four or five more. But I want our listeners to know that it's not that simple. It's not that simple. And so don't beat yourself up. I think exactly. that's the key thing. My patients yep. often are their worst critics, and they're their worst critics because what they've heard from their doctors, their family members, their peers, is that they have failed. Absolutely. And, and my goal is to help them realize that they are not indeed a failure, that there are options, we can treat this disease, we do have treatments available, Mm -hmm. and to seek care from those that are able to provide that care. So Dr. Cody Stanford, I'm interested about your opinion on the effects of um, our patients with the disease of obesity and their, A, compromise their musculoskeletal health, but also their perception, their well, I should say maybe any disparate care they may receive from not just primary care physicians, but, you know, orthopedic surgery specialists. And have you seen an impact when it comes to caring for our patients who we know have joint issues, secondary to their weight or maybe pre-existing? Give us your thoughts on that. Absolutely. I do think that when we look at patients that have excess weight, that there is this presumption that they're less physically active than their normal weight or lean counterparts. Um, And so the presumption is, is that they're not working hard enough, they're not active. And I think often, especially when they're seeing our specialty physicians, particularly orthopedic surgeons, that they are met with, um, they meet significant resistance when they go and seek care for joint issues, joint pains, um, 
often they're just told, oh, you just lose weight, go and lose 100 pounds, come back to see me so that we can maybe take care of replacing that knee or that hip. Um, when indeed that may be part of the problem, but it may be also that what we're noticing is that the patient may just have um, a chronic history of, of joint issues that may be secondary to issues um, that may have developed in childhood. It may be genetically predisposed or what they may actually have is a malignancy in that joint that is just going undiagnosed and untreated because the presumption is, is that that excess weight is causing all of the problems. So what I've seen, unfortunately, in my practice is there was one woman that had come in to see us that definitely had hip pain, um, was told that she needed to lose a significant amount of weight before she could receive a total hip replacement by her orthopedic surgeon. She did undergo um, bariatric surgery, responded well, lost on the order of about 110 pounds, um, still had hip pain that was actually more pronounced right. post her weight loss mm -hmm. and went in to see her orthopedist. They did imaging and she was found to have a malignancy or a tumor in that hip that had just gone, that she obviously had, had noticed possibly, but um, no one had paid attention to the fact that this could be anything other than her weight as the cause for mm -hmm. her pain. Um, so, you know, we're doing a disservice to our patients and I think we as physicians must do better. They come to seek care and we um, can't allow our biases to compromise the level of care that they receive. And we, we've spoken about weight bias. Right. What do you think are some of the solutions to curbing the um, disparities, you know, that rear their ugly heads due, due to weight bias? And we can talk about that from the mm -hmm. healthcare provider's perspective and then also from a society's perspective. Okay, so from the healthcare pro, um, provider perspective, I think one of the main issues is that we're just not educated. Right. I just published a review in the International Journal of Obesity looking at obesity medical education and medical schools, residencies, and fellowships throughout the entire world from 2005 to 2018. And what we found is that no country, no level of education is doing a great job of educating about obesity. And if we are supposed to be the providers of health care, whether we be MDs, DOs, RNs, et cetera, and we're not receiving appropriate education, how can we expect to really do a service to our patients when this is by far the most prevalent chronic disease process? And I would say the disease of our time. From the society perspective, I think about how the media often negatively portrays persons that have obesity um, in a very negative way. And pr the presumption is that, oh, they're eating boxes of pizza all day and they're, they're eating fast food, they're not exercising. And so these messages get perpetuated um, time and time again within the media. And so we really need to be thoughtful about what we're looking at, what type of shows are being placed and what shows are we consuming, what's being placed on Instagram. Um, I see a lot of posts about someone that's lost weight and there's judgments about how they lost that weight and that predicts how, how much value we place on that individual if they were able to do it, quote unquote, the right way, which is, ooh, just diet and exercise. And so these messages are all off and they're, they're continuing to cause problems for our patients that are, that are indeed working hard um, to achieve and maintain a healthy weight. Well, we just wanna applaud you for your efforts to elevate the message around the multifactorial nature mm -hmm. of the disease of obesity, um, educating us on proper terminology, helping us to curb weight bias. Uh, especially as it overlaps with you know, racial uh, biases and, and the other biases that we know are, are prevalent. So thank you so much for your time. We love your insight and input. We need it. Yay.
Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to the Health Disparities Podcast. Join us again at movementislifecaucus.com, or you can subscribe to the podcast at iTunes, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. New episodes will be posted every two weeks, and please look out for our special series featuring thought leaders from our partner organizations. This is Dr. Bonnie Simpson-Mason thanking you for your time and energy.